Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. It's the podcast where we answer your letters here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Wrap and other places as well, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for IGN and other places as well, and people write in and call me Rockmeister McCool. Because you are. Because I, I guess I accumulated that nickname. Uh... Can we uh, can we start the show with like the old dial-up noises, like old modem dial-up noises? Why? Because I like them. I miss them in a weird way. I know the uh, internet has improved, and we don't need that technology anymore. But I feel like a ritual has been lost. Just online, you gotta gotta go through, gotta pass through the gateway because to get on into cyberspace. Because also, I love can we start you. using the term cyberspace again? I, I didn't realize we'd stopped. Uh, uh, because I love you, I will look into the dial-up noises, maybe. <laughs> Thank you. That's not a guarantee. <laughs> but maybe. Be-bong, be-bong. Uh, yeah, so yeah, this is our letters episode. You write in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. All of our listeners, this is your show. You control the conversation. You can ask us questions, uh, be they our opinion or for the history of things or recommendations for movies. You can raise your own critiques and concerns with movies, trends, whatever really you want to talk about. We are as open a book as we can possibly be while being a book, I guess. I don't know. I haven't really thought this out very well. Whitney, who was our first letter from? Our first letter is from Ed. Hi, Ed. Hello, Ed. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. I just finished watching the Swedish science fiction movie Aniara. Since you, Whitney, are a Swedish movie lover and a sci-fi nerd, I wonder if you have seen it. I missed it. It was playing at the oh. New Art for one week here in Los Angeles, and it slipped me by. It's a, It was a sci-fi movie about... Uh, it was sort of like that movie Passengers, where there's sort of like this cruise ship mm. on its way to another planet uh, because... Climate change has wiped out the Earth, and a bunch of people were stuck on this ship. And I think they drift off course. I don't. I didn't see it though. I don't. Yeah, I didn't see it either. Um, uh, if not, you should watch it. Uh, I know it's on Hulu now. But, oh, cool. uh, I tried to Google a review of it, but could not find any. Since you're doing lists, I'll also ask Bibbs, hmm. what are your top five Swedish movies? And Whitney, what are your top five cat starring movies? What? What? Okay, that's, we got two different lists. That's totally different. Mm. Keep up the good work, uh, and everyone. That's not. Everyone that's not a Patreon should be, if they have the means to, uh, that they can enjoy all the good special content and we can all finally have Firefly reviewed. Well, Ed, do we have news for you? Yeah, <laughs> actually. We, were, we, we made an announcement on our Patreon page. Uh, we, when we created our Patreon page years ago now, like three four years ago mm-hmm. now, uh, we never thought we'd get 250 subscribers. But we were like, they recommend you set a goal. And you have some sort of payoff for that goal. Mm. So we said, okay, our goal is 250 subscribers. And if we get 250, we're going to do the one show and cancel too soon. We swore we'd never do. We'll do Firefly and we'll do one episode of a podcast per episode of Firefly. Well, sure enough, this last week we crossed the threshold. We have over 250 right subscribers. Right on your birthday. Yeah, too. what a nice little gift. Thank you, <laughs> thank you everybody for subscribing. Um, there's a few rules about how that Firefly podcast is going to work. It will be for Patreon subscribers only. However, and any level though, if any you're level, one dollar a month, you get to hear it. One dollar a month, you get the Firefly podcast. Um, and if it, and if our subscribers ever dip below 250, we will put a pause on the Firefly podcast. Mm-hmm. Until we're back up again, mm. because it seems like that's fair. But um, we were very, very excited about it. It's interesting. I rewatched the pilot of Firefly, and um, my uh, opinion of the show has evolved over time. And if we okay. had done that Firefly podcast, 
when we started Cancel Too Soon, I think my take on the show would be very different. Okay. So I'm actually really excited to talk about it with, like, fresh eyes. Because yeah. I, have, I haven't watched the show in, like, five, ten years. Okay. Um, this will be a discovery for me. I Not only have I not seen Firefly, I don't know a whole lot about it. I did watch the feature film, mm. Serenity. But, uh, and I've mentioned this before, it just sort of, like, passed through my brain without touching anything. <laughs> like, I, I just didn't retain much of that movie. And weirdly, um, another movie I saw around the same time filled in the gaps that I thought were being filled by Serenity. So I mix it up oh, with, with the Kurt Vimmer film Ultraviolet. Which has nothing to do uh, with it. No, for some reason, though, it's like they, they decided to occupy the same space in my brain. So, yeah, every time I try to think of Serenity, I get images from that movie Ultraviolet. Nothing to do with anything. No, not this, really. This, I mean, like, wires are crossed in my brain in this strange way. I, I guess Summer Glau has kind of a similar haircut. Well, and then they both sword fight. There's a lot of sword fighting in Ultraviolet. Mm. But one of one of the conceits in Ultraviolet is uh, they, they carry swords, but their hilts, like, are in another dimension. Like, they can hide the swords inside their bodies somehow. Oh, I don't even remember that. I yeah. haven't seen Ultraviolet since it came out. Yeah, like, they don't have like, the scabbard sticking up behind them. They just have, like, the handle in their leg, and they can, like, sort of pull it out of their leg like it's in another dimension. And I thought that was something, that was a conceit from Firefly. That they no. had these, like, leg swords. So for the no, longest time, I thought there was a lot of sword fighting in Firefly. That That's not actually a thing. Uh, I, I, I have watched the pilot now, and, oh, it's a Western. Oh, <laughs> this, is not, this is not what I thought at all. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm discovering what Firefly is. Uh, now I've consumed a little bit more Joss Whedon, so I know a little bit, what, a little bit more what he's about other than uh, the superhero movies. It'll be interesting. It'll be an yeah. interesting exploration of, of Firefly. What was your you were you were asked for um, cat movies? Yeah, cat. Uh, were we, oh, how many golly. were you asked for? Like five, five, five. five each. Okay, five, okay, well, I'll, I'll just go movies. off the top of my head. I'm not gonna g- g- look yeah. it up too much. Um, I remember really liking the original uh, That Darn Cat when I was a kid <laughs> uh, because the cat was just a cat. Like it didn't have it didn't have a funny voice. It didn't have extra character. It just did cat stuff. And I thought that was really interesting when I was a little kid. Nice. Um, there is an animated giallo from it- from Italy starring oh. cat characters called Felide. Felide is weird. <laughs> Felide is a weird ass movie because yeah, it's animated talking cats, and it but it's like dark. a it's like a murder mystery, it's and like, it's fucked it's up. Really like, bizarre. It's really fucked up. Like uh, I do not do not accidentally show that to kids. <laughs> it will it will they be like I don't know if I want to go to sleep mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, the problem is cats are are rarely the heroes of movies. They're usually the villains because cats, when compared to dogs, are kind of inscrutable. That's not strictly true. Not but stri- it's, there's it's also um, uh, the Three Lives of Thomasina. Good example. It's another good one where a cat is a hero. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Homeward Bound. The cat's mm-hmm. just another one of the heroes in that one as well. I, and, yeah, I, suppose you know, so. I, I actually haven't seen home, the Homeward Bound. No, um, they're, they're, they're good. I've seen my They're Otis, both good, so. actually. Both. The, I haven't seen like. The, the ones that came out in like the 90s with yeah. like Michael J. Fox. And yeah, the, I didn't yeah. see those. Those are good. Those right. are good movies. Um, I, in terms of uh, another animated film, this isn't about cats, but there's a really good sassy sidekick cat character in Kiki's Delivery Service. Uh, in the American version, the cat is dubbed by Phil Hartman. Which adds oh, this yeah. weird kind of sarcastic version. So if you watch the English dub of that, it's, it's a slightly it, different take. It's on a the sli- yeah, slightly different yeah. character. And I think good, I, I think I like that version of the character better. I've seen both <laughs> the, the Japanese and American versions. Uh, and, let's be honest, Phil Hartman just brings a lot to yeah, it. Like, yeah, that's that's fair. Uh, there, there's one really great bit where uh, the cat is in the grocery store and they buy. I don't even know what it is, but it's some sort of canned product. 
product that has a picture of the cat on it. Hmm. And he just says, hey, look, Kiki, it's me. <laughs> so they buy the cat just because it's him. Nice. Uh, and I need one more Do you? Uh, cat movie. I thought that was pretty good. Um, all right, well. I'm, I'm not choosing cats. Uh, <laughs> be good. It's, it's right there. Yeah, I'm not choosing Asking. sleepwalkers. <laughs> what about uh, Cat's Eye? Cat's Eye is pretty good. I'm going to go with Keanu. Oh, Keanu's yeah. a delight. Ke- Keanu is really hilarious. Such a good Underrated movie. comedy from a couple of years back. The yeah, it really movie. just fell off the radar after Get Out completely like redefined Jordan Peele's career, but it's yeah. so good. Um, when it comes to Swedish movies, I am no expert at Swedish movies. All right. Like, I'm, I've seen Swedish movies, but mm. and I'll give you five Swedish movies that I recommend, but... I, these are not the most obscure Swedish movies. These are just movies that have fallen into my right. uh, purview. So, uh, first off, I want to recommend Force Majeure. Okay. A uh, really wonderful movie. They recently remade it as that Will Ferrell movie. Um, Force Majeure was a French film. No. No. No, it's uh, um, uh, Ruben Ostland. Oh, okay. I did that one. If I'm wrong... Mm. About the, the the nationality of here, then I'm sorry. Well, it, it, it could have been like it, I think a it's, Swedish co-production. It's a co-production. Yeah. Oh, right. It is a co-production. I'm, co- right. I'm confirming it right now. All right. It is a co-production. If I'm wrong, this mm. isn't officially a Swedish movie. I apologize. That's me not knowing enough about Europe. Uh, okay. Uh, but Force Majeure is a great movie mm. about a family on vacation. Uh, they're going skiing, and it looks like there's a landslide, and the dad just cuts and runs and abandons his wife and kids. He he, and, gra- he grabs the electronics off the table and runs yeah. without looking at his wife or his kid at all. Yeah, and uh, when it turns out the landslide looked <clears throat> way worse than it was, now he just has to live with the fact that his family knows that he's a coward, and when mm. the chips are down, he won't side with them. And yeah, and I didn't see the American remake, which has Will Ferrell and Julia, Julia Louis Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. So they're probably trying to play it for laughs. Maybe not. Yeah, the original is not a comedy. It yeah. is about sort of the dissolution of the marital state. I mean, there's some there's some dry, dark humor in it, but mm. it's sad. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. really sad, but it's great, and mm. I love it a lot. Um, let's see, we are the best. The Swedish co-production. Uh, that is one of the most delightful movies uh, ever made about starting a band, which is a really fun subgenre in general. Mm. Like, there's a lot of great movies about starting a band, but Where are the Best is easily upper echelon. It's about a group of uh, three girls who are, like, what, in junior high? Uh-huh. Like, really young. They're, they're 12. They're, yeah. like, 12. And so they want to start... Like a punk band. They want to rebel, but they have nothing to rebel against. So they just <laughs> rebel against gym class mm. via music, but they're not very good. It's great. Mm. Uh, let's see what we got here. Sound of Noise. Oh, yeah. I love this movie. Nobody talks about this movie at all, and it is a crime. Uh, Sound of Noise is about a group of musicians who decide to basically, you know the premise of a flash mob, mm. where a bunch of dancers invade a public space and they just do a big performance in the middle of nowhere and just sort of interrupt everyone's day with a musical number. Mm. Um, the band, the musical artists in Sound of Noise do that, but they do it in ways that are a public menace. Like, <laughs> they'll go into a bank wearing, like, ski masks and they'll turn the bank into a musical instrument and they'll, like, shred money to, like, to a beat. And it's mm-hmm. just, and the detective who was responsible for catching them is tone deaf. And so hates, he's and hates music and hates music mm-hmm. because of it. So he's in order to catch them, he's got to learn to think like them, and he can't. <laughs> and it's great, and it's creative, and there's nothing quite like it, mm-hmm. and I love it to pieces. Um, I'm not the biggest expert in Ingmar Bergman, but the Seventh Seal, okay, uh, is I think one of the great. 
I don't even want to call it like a fairy tale. World classics. Well, I mean, it's a world classic, yeah. but I'm talking about the type of story that it is. Mm-hmm. I think the idea of playing Mor- chess morality with Morality play? Not even morality. I think yeah. it's, it's, it's like a parable. Okay. And I think it's one of the great parables of cinema. Mm-hmm. Um... And, uh, yeah, it's about playing chess with death. And uh, it stars the late, great Max von Sydow, who recently passed away. Uh, like the, 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 news, last... the news landed today yeah. uh, as we record this. Yeah. Um, he's wonderful in it. He was wonderful in everything. The movie is just fantastic. Um, I'm going to pick... This isn't the best Swedish film I've ever seen, but I think it's one that gets tragically overlooked. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the original version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yes. The, Don't watch the American remake. The American remake is gorgeously photographed. I agree with that. Mm. It's a good-looking movie. Is it Wally Pfister who did that one? Oh, I think it was Emmanuel Lubezki. Let me double-check that, because that's that's worth checking. Um, It's a good-looking movie. It's Mm. it's it's a handsome production. I'll give you all of that. But it's so slick that it kind of misses the pulpy vibe. Yeah. Of the story. And the original version, directed by Niels Arden Oplev, a, a relatively underrated director, I feel, uh, is so much stronger in like every way. It's faster paced. Noli well, Rapaz has a much more interesting take on yeah, Elizabeth Salander. Yeah, Elizabeth Salander. I, I really hate what they did with Elizabeth in the American version. Cinematography uh, by Jeff Cronenweth. Jeff Cronenweth. Okay. Yeah. We were both wrong. Yeah, we were. <laughs> Uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful photography. D- uh, David Fincher just knows how to shoot the heck out of a movie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's great looking. But uh, yeah, Elizabeth Salander, Elizabeth Salander in Lisbeth the Elizabeth Salander uh, in the or- original Swedish version was you know sort of this spiky punk rock character who didn't give a damn. Yeah, she would confront everybody. She'd walk in a room and say "fuck you" to everybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, she she dressed that way to sort of repel people, and that, I thought that was a much more interesting version of the character. Whereas uh, Rooney Mara's take on the character was she was kind of like this wallflower, as kind of wilted, more wilted. damaged. Yeah, it's yeah. like she she dressed like in this way to sort of hide from people, and all she really wanted was a cuddle, and that's that, that's not an interesting character. I don't think it is. And, and I it don't think it's and as it interesting. Come into play with sort of how enraged and justice minded the character was. I mean, maybe if the movie had supported Rooney Mara's like take on it, they'd evolved the story around that take. Yeah. Maybe they could have gotten away with it. Like it's okay to adapt a character in a different way, but mm-hmm. I feel like the original version is just infinitely stronger. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then lastly, let the right one in is great. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it's really, really great. But like again, these are mostly stuff that people have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not gonna pretend I'm an expert in Swedish cinema, but I do recommend all those movies. And uh, mm-hmm. I hope if you haven't seen them, you check them out. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for the, the question. Yeah, great question. Uh, here's a letter from Johnny Starlight. Hi, oh, John- hi Johnny hi, Starlight. Johnny Starlight. Yeah. Jo- uh, Johnny Starlight is a lo- longtime fan of ours. Thank you. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. It was lovely seeing you both at the Schmodown Awards a few weeks ago. Yay! So this is a, a little bit of an old letter. I look forward to seeing both of you compete some more this season. It's your year, Whitney. Oh, is it? Well, we'll oh, you're see. doing okay so far. Well, so far. <laughs> Knockwood. I don't have a full top 10 list of the 2010s, but a few of the movies I really liked have stuck with me over the last decade um, are The Witch, Hereditary, Midsommar, and Christine. Arrival is the best movie of the last decade for me. The ending hits me in a very profound emotional way. Uh, Now, in memoriam to the two-shot, I wanted to ask, of all the films you reviewed on that podcast, including when it was part of Critically Acclaimed, which do you think was the most deserving of its bad reputation, and what do you think was the least deserving of its bad reputation? Oh, okay. Um, Well, we we reviewed Space Jam. Yeah, Space Jam. We're we're uh, carved in stone on record as to... (laughs) Just how unbelievably shitty that movie is. Ah! 
I will not stand by any of your nostalgic takes. I, I no. don't want to hear the defense. That is a piece of garbage. Yeah. Uh, it is a garbage, garbage movie. I, it is and... a cynical movie. It is a movie that mm. was, in its basic construct, designed to not be art. Yeah. And yeah. it is designed to just sort of be a product. Mm. And that it has been embraced so much mm. is baffling to me. It's not even like it's based off of personality. The Looney Tunes are barely Looney Tunes sometimes. Like, they're not even in character sometimes. Yeah. Michael Jordan is not a good actor. <laughs> he, like doesn't, we, he doesn't have enough... Ch- like, we talk about this, like, oh, well, sometimes... Like, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Jean-Claude Van Johnson. Yeah. Oh, he's just playing himself. Michael Jordan couldn't play himself. Yeah, yeah. Michael Jordan was terrible at playing himself. Some athletes can be good good actors. Look at Kevin Garnett in Uncut Gems. It's oh, like, yeah, he's great. He's great. Yeah, like, he knows what he's doing. Like, you'd think they hired an actor to play a basketball star. No, yeah. it turns out he's a basketball star. Yeah, he's really good. Um, yeah, that 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 is it That's has a, real a bad stinker, reputation man. in our heads, and it's just bad all around. Not that we didn't review a lot of crap, yeah, and yeah. we did. Um, when it comes to the ones that didn't deserve mm. that reputation, I mean, we did John Carter. I maintain that John Carter is okay. n- not an all-time classic, but mm. a good. Pulpy, fun yeah, sci-fi adventure. It's not a bad film. It's it's yeah. overblown. I think it's overwritten. Uh, yeah, I think it has it has a few narrative problems, but no, I don't. I, there I don't are like worse the lead, Star Wars movies than I, John Carter. I, I, I don't like the lead character at all. I don't even think of John Carter. I think of Dejah Thoris she's when so I think bad. about that movie. Yeah, Lynn Collins. Yeah, man. Lynn she Collins was, who played Dejah Thoris. She should have been the lead character. She's in a new horror movie called Beneath Us, where she's mm-hmm. playing a Russ Meyer character. <laughs> yes, so much. It's a dark, yes. grim, politically minded mm-hmm. movie. But she's having so much fun being evil. <laughs> yeah, Lynn Collins is is wonderful in John Carter. Uh, we we covered a, a film. Uh, we covered Joe's Apartment, oh, yeah. which is yeah, it's okay. It's this dumb bug movie, but it, it has in its blood this really bizarre cult movie sensibility that I actually really appreciate. And like I watched it again, it's like I'm. I'm actually really enjoying myself, and I hate cockroaches. Mm-hmm. Like I'm actually, I actually have like a bit of a phobia. If I see one on, a, on the floor, I'll kind of recoil. But this movie about the CGI singing, dancing cockroaches just hits me and hits me in the right way. Um, oh, another one that I again I remembered it somewhat fondly, but I figured I would watch it again mm. and say, "Yeah, this movie sucks." I was young and I was stupid, mm. and then watching, I'm like. I don't understand why people hate Caddyshack too. <laughs> I don't understand. Why, it, why does it have the reputation as one of the worst? Ever? I can appreciate liking the original better. I think it's kind of shabby, but mm. whatever. It's 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 not the worst thing mm. ever. It's it's okay. Caddyshack two was fine. It's fine. We we it's even, fine. We defended it, and the director Alan Arkush, <laughs> like a, a, a hardworking, award winning director who has done all kinds of wonderful movies, actually wrote to us and said, "No, you guys are wrong about Caddyshack too. <laughs> I don't like that movie." <laughs> He, you, he made, I made it, and I don't like that movie. So that was at least a good opportunity here. <laughs> a non-defense from Alan Arkish. Yeah, I, I don't understand that one either, because that Caddyshack... I like Caddyshack 2 better than I like Caddyshack. Yeah. But I don't like Caddyshack, so... Yeah. I mean, I like it okay. I like it okay. It's just, I, I mean, maybe if I'd been around when it came out, mm-hmm. it might be one of those movies where there wasn't a lot like it, mm-hmm. and as a result, if you grow up... Like, I know a lot of people who, like, will just... They were around and they were kids when Superman the movie came out. Yeah. And they cannot, for the life of them, hear any criticisms of that movie because mm. of them it was magic. They believed a man could fly. Mm. I get that. It was There was no other movie like it when it came out. That's great. I didn't have that. I grew, I was born a couple of years after it came out. For me, it was on TV. Mm. Now, there's a lot of movies I watched on TV that are absolutely magical and that I have just as strong feelings about. Superman the movie has problems. 
they're just and they're not like the worst problems ever, but it gets really jokey in the second half. Like it's it's a totally the the, I, the tone is completely off in the second half. I, I don't mind the joke. I, I find the, I, I find that, the Deus Ex Machina ending dissatisfying. Well, that, there's that. Yeah. I don't. I find Otis completely mm-hmm. annoying as a character. Like I hate mm-hmm. ever. I love Ned Beatty. Otis is a character who should not be in a movie. Like I just, I, we don't <laughs> do you, need Otis. Who, who do you like better, Otis or Lenny Luthor from Superman Four? Lenny. Okay, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. And it's not because like the, Lenny the John, Luthor, the John Cryer character. Yeah, everyone hates Superman Four. I don't hate Superman Four. I think there's good ideas in Superman Four. Just has a budget of fifty dollars. Yeah, yeah. The, the budget sucked, and it's kind of stuck in the eighties. And there's a couple of plot points that are crap, but you could say that for all mm-hmm. the Superman movies. Um. Here's the difference. When you look at Lex Luthor's sidekicks, mm. he had three sidekicks in the original Superman movies. Mm. He had Otis, who was an incompetent idiot. He had Miss Tessamacher. Miss Teschmacher, who... Teschmacher. Teschmacher, who was nice. I liked her. Um, she got unceremoniously written out of Superman, too. She's with Lex Luthor in the Arctic, and then she's gone. <laughs> and they never explain it. I know the movie got like reshot and stuff like that, but they never explain it. And I'm like, did he kill her? What did he do to Miss Teschmacher? She just vanished. It'd be great if she showed up at the end and like she had superpowers because she went to that little booth. Yeah. That, oh, that'd be uh, fun. Yeah, gives you the, the Kryptonian superpower. That would be fun. Um, but yeah, she was at least competent. She helped him escape from prison. Lenny mm. is a crappy 1980s teen cliche. Okay. In every conceivable way, they cast John Cryer on purpose. This 50s greaser character, which we're showing up in a lot of 80s movies. Yeah, he's he's totally of his time. But he's competent. He breaks Lex Luthor out of jail all by himself. He helps Lex Luthor clone Superman, for God's sake. He's a competent sidekick. (laughs) I I understand teaming up with Lenny. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. My theory for why Lex Luthor teamed up with Otis, this is the only thing that makes sense in my head. Okay. And I've said this before. They were roommates in college. Yeah. They got completely yeah. randomly thrown together in whatever college they were in and for whatever and 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 initially Luthor hated Otis. Hated yeah. his ever-loving guts. But when Luthor's dad died, Otis was the only one who cared enough <laughs> to like stay with him throughout the night and get him drunk. So they have this connection that even though Luthor doesn't like or resents him, he feels like family. So you can't, like, say no, you know? You you, got to give him a job at least. You missed the obvious connection. They're clearly lovers. I don't think that's clear. No, no, it's not clear at all. I don't think that's clear at all. They were lovers in, like, they were lovers in college. Yeah, they had had a fling. Yeah. But that that was it. That's their connection. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that's... that's, Mm. That's the answer to that, I guess. Uh, there's more to this letter. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we got um, sidetracked. I, I wanted to propose a two shot of my own. This is still from Johnny Starlight. Uh, both films from 2019 Cats and Midsommar. <laughs> yes, <laughs> both, actually, yes. Both are films that feature a young female protagonist who is seeking acceptance and emotional support after losing her family and a sense of belonging with it. Victoria is stuck in a bag and abandoned alone in an alley, the murder suicide of Danny's sister and parents at the beginning of Midsommar. Yep. Uh, who is slowly inducted into a murder cult, the Jellicles and the Herga. Yep. By exploiting the young female protagonist's need to find acceptance, emotional support, and a sense of belonging. For during the big murder cult festival, the annual Jellicle Ball, and the particular iteration of the Midsommar Festival, which takes place every 90 years. Yep. And five, and both festivals are led by a matriarchal figure. Old Deuteronomy, uh, though it is a traditionally male role, and the May Queen. Please discuss. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say it right now. Well, signed, Johnny Starlight. Johnny Starlight, I'm going to uh, say it right now. Mm. Midsommar and Cats are the same film. More or less. Yeah. Just one has cat people and one has a bear person. 
<laughs> they're both there's you know what both films feature a scene where somebody is wearing a like human skin yeah because in midsummer they, they wear will Poulter's skin and in uh in the uh rumor willis not rumor Willis, rebel wilson yeah. uh, character like unzips her own skin and has like human skin underneath yeah that's a weird bit yeah. that they never talk about they eat they eat weird bloody things uh, um, there's <laughs> yeah, the yeah. elderly are begging to die to be sacrificed. Get old Gus. Oh, there you go. Yeah, no, it's there's, a thing. They're the same thing. I'm calling it right now. Thank you, Johnny Starlight, for raising awareness. Uh, and uh, if any movie theater mm-hmm. has the guts to to like put those back to back, you've got you. I've sold the ticket. I'm gonna go. <laughs> I'm gonna go right now. Um, it's great. Cats has already made its way into the midnight movie circuit. I know, isn't that great? Like, ju- just time that here, happened that here, fast. here recently in Los Angeles, there was a midnight screening of Cats, and you know the, the film had already closed. It's already bombed. It's already got its reputation, mm-hmm. and I can imagine going to a theater at night. Uh, and if you're over twenty one, you're a little drunk, and just sitting and watching Cats. I, I actually want to go to that. It's been a while since I've done a midnight movie, and I think oh, yeah. Cats has the potential to be one of the all time midnight movies. Mm-hmm. I really do. Because it's terrible. It's undeniably terrible. Mm. But it's so much fun that you can't be mad at it for it's, being terrible. Well, it's, it's like, I'm not mad at it. It's just ill-conceived oh, at every level. Oh, I was mad at it. I felt a little <laughs> sick watching it. But yeah, it's 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 a it's such an ill-conceived thing that it would be a blast to jeer. I would. Lo- Here's my one hope. Hmm. Is that the midnight screenings of Cats, the ones that like survive, are the original version before they cleaned up the VFX and redistributed it <laughs> to theaters. Because when I saw that sucker on opening day, mm. the unfinished CGI was pretty glaring. Like the human hands and that sort of the thing. The human yeah. hands were not the worst. The idea is like some of the characters had like collars. Mm. The collars looks like they were painted on in like Space Jam. Yeah. Like they were just completely <laughs> low res, mm. bright colors, did not fit the environment at mm. all. Like, it was bad. It is such a terrible thing. Yeah, it really is. Cats are such a terrible thing. <laughs> what happened? Here's a letter from Tom. <laughs> Hi, Tom. Hey, guys. I recently watched two movies by two different directors that I have grown up admiring. Unfortunately, both movies left me terribly lukewarm. Huh. Uh, the first movie I watched was Three from Hell from Rob Zombie. Yeah. I've grown up being a fan of Zombie's music, and when I discovered Zombie was now directing movies, I was so excited I went down to my local DVD rental shop, how I miss those, mm. and rented House of 1000 Corpses as soon as it was available. Safe to say my feelings towards his movies has constantly changed over the years. <laughs> I absolutely adore many of his films, House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, Halloween, and Lords of Salem, yep. for their unique style and throwback elements to some of the older horror movies that I love. On the flip side, Zombie has made some films that I absolutely detest, Halloween 2, 31, and 3 from Hell. I like I have, two of those, ironically. <laughs> I even had to turn 31 off because it was giving me a massive migraine. <laughs> I found 3 from Hell to be totally pointless and quite a departure from the rest of the trilogy, which is hugely upsetting for me. I'm quite puzzled by this because of all the other directors that I love, say David Fincher, Kubrick, and Haneke, never really have fil- never have films that I detest or even dislike. So to have a director to have such a varied consistency is baffling to me. Hmm. The other film that I saw recently that left me look warm was Jane Silent Bob Reboot. I haven't seen that one. I haven't yet. seen that one yet. Yeah. It, it kind of like 
came and went as a well, fathom event here they, in LA. They did it as yeah. like a road show, so it wasn't like playing at one theater for like a week. Yeah. You either were available when they that were showing night, it or yeah. you screwed off, yeah. Mm-hmm. I know Kevin Smith can be a bit of a meme in the film community, but, but while growing up, he served as a huge influence on my tastes in filmmaking aspirations. He did li- give a lot of voice to a, a certain age group. I, give, well, I have a lot sure, of respect yeah. for Kevin Smith. I think his movies are hit mm-hmm. and miss, but I think he has he has a voice. I mm-hmm. think he has a personality. I he, think he has stuff on his mind. Yeah, that's for respect. sure. I have or, a lot of respect least, for him. Or at least he did. I think he said everything he needed to, and then... I think he's admitted that. Yeah, and he's openly said so. so he's, just um, having, he's just having fun now. I interviewed him when he did Yoga Hosers, mm-hmm. uh, a movie which I don't like, I don't dislike nearly as much as everyone else does. It's, I think it's kind of fun. It's, it's, it's stupid, but it's, it's un- silly. It's and they, unbelievably stupid, but yeah, just, it, is, it is totally a gap. It's just an excuse. to. And he, he said this, like, mm. I wanted to make a movie with my kid. Yeah, my, and, kid, my kid and her best friend and some buddies of mine. And he talked yeah. about this, like, in the end of the day, like, when he's on his deathbed. And he said this, when mm. I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to look back really fondly on Yoga Hosers, no matter how it turned out. Because mm. those were, like, weeks, months I got to spend making a movie with my family. Yeah, yeah. Good for him. You don't have, doesn't have to be amazing. Mm. Like, it'd be nice if it was. It's okay to say you don't like it. But I, I, I can't have any animosity towards Dang. Yoga Hosers. There's nothing no. to be angry about. I, I can be really angry about not. Tusk. I think Tusk is a piece of cynical crap. Yeah. I will say that right now. And so I, the, just, the, I don't think it works. It, I... Here's the only way I admire Tusk. First of all, T- Tusk is fucking terrible. It, it is, <laughs> it's really it is hard piece to watch. Of trash. Um, I think the first act is okay, but then it just yeah, falls the, completely off a cliff. Yeah, like when, when it starts skewing into this bizarre comedy, and they bring oh. in Johnny Depp to do this. Weird when Johnny voice Depp shows and, uh, up, it's hell. It's hell. And, the, and the, uh, there's a conversation the Johnny Depp character has, and he has this like weird, thick French Canadian accent that mm-hmm. doesn't resemble anything from reality. And he talks to um, uh, uh, Michael Parks. Michael Parks. Who is also putting on this weird kind of slurred speech to this dis- the characters like disguising his voice, I think. And they're just sort of like screaming at each other for what feels like a whole hour. Uh-huh. I know the scene about is, nothing. About, about nothing at all. It's like, oh, what do you think of poutine? Oh, I don't like poutine. It's bad for my stomach. Oh, I love poutine. Do you like spiders? Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! <laughs> if you look at Tusk as a prank on the audience. Yes. Like this weird Andy Kaufman-esque sort of thing, where we're the butt of the joke, then I can kind of admire it from that angle. Still not fun to watch. I still think, I still think it doesn't work on that. I, mm. I, I would appreciate the idea, but I don't think it works. Well, if they had sort of called that into play, like they had turned to the camera and said, <laughs> you watch the Walrus movie, you asshole, which they kind of do over the credits. They play the podcast that inspired it, like, over the credits. Yeah. Um, but I don't think, I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't mm. think it works. Anyway, I think there was more to the letter, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. He's talking about yeah. Jane Silent Bob Reboot. I know Kevin Smith can be a bit of a meme. Uh, da, da, da. I love most of his movies in the View Askew universe, Clerks 1 and 2, Dogma, Mallrats, and even Jane and Silent Bob Strike Back. And I even love a few of his other films, Red State, Zack and Miri, and Tusk. Mm, all right. Yeah. Um, yet, similarly to Zombie, Smith has made some films that I just can't stand. Cop Out, Yoga Hosers, and now Jane Silent Bob Reboot. Mm. I'll always stand up for Kevin Smith and Zombie as filmmakers simply because of the influence they had on me and the way they have been very forward about their own work. Jay and Silent Bob Reboot was a mixed bag that mainly fell flat because, uh, but did have scenes that made me laugh occasionally and felt like a half-assed attempt at capturing the old magic they once had. Uh, So I guess my question to you guys would be, are there any directors that have an inconsistent track record? Maybe they've made a few films you love and a few films you hate, or uh, one film you love, but the rest you hate. <laughs> Get with the great work, Tom. Um, yeah, that's a thing. I mean, it's, we like to yeah. think that the directors that we like will mm. always make movies that we like, but that is not the case. No, definitely not. Especially if they're prolific. I mean, it's mm. very rare for a prolific filmmaker who works over an extended period of time 
to never have a stinker. Spielberg's made some crap. Yeah, absolutely. The Lost World is not a good movie. My uh, it's one, of, not. one of my least favorite movies of the year it came out was Ready Player One. Yeah, I, Ready Player I think, One. I don't I think it's, I don't think it works. Like he he Spielberg is just sort of adapting material. He's not bringing any sort of thought or wit or insight to that material. He's just sort of. Well, doing it's like oh, and here's a Mortal Kombat reference and an alien reference on the screen at the same time. Isn't that exciting? Well, no. no what are you doing just, with you're that? You're just shoving them together. Yeah. You don't really, it, it, like, it, hey, Ready hey, Play- recognize that. It's, it's like a Player- spoof movie, like a, a Friedberg Spelzer spoof movie. He's uniquely ill qualified to make that movie, and I'll, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because when Spielberg did Indiana Jones, that was an homage to the stuff that Spielberg grew up with. Mm-hmm. That kind of adventure story. Ready Player One is an homage to the kind of stuff that Spielberg made. Mm. He doesn't have the connection to the material that someone who grew up loving it does. You needed someone from a different generation to make Ready Player One if, and that's a big if, Mm. that thing was ever going to work. Yeah, because yeah. he just—I don't think Spielberg had the right vibe. He was—he well, was, he was looking exactly. at it as an interesting exercise, uh-huh. and I think when they were making uh, the one part of that movie that kind of works is when they go into The Shining. Oh, there you go. That yeah. bit's inspired. That's a good <laughs> bit of filmmaking. Spielberg clearly loves that movie. That's him being a fan. But Spielberg isn't a fan of Back to the Future the way everyone else is. He mm. was around when they were making it. They were trying. He to knew out- those guys. Z- Zemeckis was doing his shtick. Yeah. <laughs> so that one doesn't work. Um, uh, the yeah, Coen I, I, Brothers come to mind. Oh, Usually yeah, they're yeah. amazing. They have a really great track record overall. In fact, when I was young. I remember, like, up until the late 90s, they were spot on. Even the stuff that other people didn't like, like when the Hudsucker Proxy or the Big Lebowski first came out, it took time for them to find an audience. Yeah, Big Lebowski was a bomb when it first opened. Oh, huge bomb. People, because it was right after Fargo, everyone thought, ah, the Coen brothers have grown up. They're going to make serious movies now. They did this kind of, what is it, (laughs) essentially a stoner comedy. They did a stoner mystery. like, And it's a brilliant stoner mystery, and I love that movie to pieces, but that was considered a huge misfire when it came Mm. out. I was a fan. I loved the Hudsucker Proxy. I loved everything they'd ever done until the early 2000s when they made some crap. Well, they did The Man Who Wasn't There, which a lot of people didn't like, and I thought was actually quite good. Uh, I think then, it's gorgeously filmed, but I don't think the story works. Okay. Uh, then they also did Intolerable Cruelty, which is not good. I don't like and, it at all. And they I also literally did don't that, like that movie at all. That remake of The Lady Killers, which has some funny performances, but is also not good. Like, Tom Hanks is shooting for the rafters on mm. that one. Like, I, I gotta give Tom Hanks credit for... for what he's doing in that film, playing this like uh, Colonel Sanders, Sanders villain, yeah. like he's having fun, <laughs> well, and, and I appreciate that. And J.K. That. Simmons as well, yeah. as, as sort of like this uh, basketball coach, whom heist guy. But that run, uh-huh. and I think that was an uninterrupted run. I think it was the man who wasn't there mm-hmm. in *Tobacco Cruelty*, and then *Lady Killers* or maybe yeah, we're all, get the all one right after the other. And I remember like three movies in a row. One I just kind of don't like, and two I actively didn't like. <laughs> And I'm like, do I still like the Coen brothers? Like, <laughs> well, have they just do they just do things I don't like now? Is that just what they are? And then I did No Country for Old Men, and holy shit, that's a good one. Yeah, it's not even yeah. my favorite. Like, it's not even in my top five, but it's really good. But they they chase that with Burn After Reading, which it's I actually like that one a lot. I, I like. That I think Brad Pitt is really. I, I think it's another one where it has good characters, but the story isn't interesting. Like I think Brad, the Brad Pitt is really hilarious in that movie. I think I find it to be like I find Burn After Reading to be a good double feature with a serious man because it's mm. all about just like how Sad life is cynical. Yeah. It's all about life is cynical bullshit, mm. and there's really nothing to learn from it. It's like mm. this really. It's, I, it's really I love, depressing this, I love a serious story. man. I do too, and uh, so yeah, I think they got back 
on the trolley. I think mm. they they fix their careers. But yeah, there's there's a lot of directors who made um, some junk once in Mosby. Hitchcock mm. isn't fa- isn't uh, infallible even after he got going. Topaz sucks. <laughs> Topaz is a bad movie. Yeah. I'm going to stand by. I don't think there's anything yeah, good about I, it. I feel, uh, and I know I'm, I'm kind of in the minority about this, but I think uh, Guillermo del Toro has kind of a 50-50 track record. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like he does Hellboy. Okay, that's like an interesting take on this kind of comic booky myth. Uh, and it, it kind of has quirky characters. Okay, the lead character is not the interesting one. All the other ones are, but... but by by which yeah, mean Meyer is not Hellboy. Meyer, yeah. yeah. The, uh, and then they, then he did Hellboy 2, which has a lot of really interesting visuals and is just written really badly. We completely disagree yeah. on that's when I think um, Hellboy 2 is the good one. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of Crimson Peak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, Pacific Rim. You know, he does these sort of visually interesting, uh, kind of ambitious movies that don't really click for mm-hmm. me. But then I think all of his Spanish language films are really good. Yeah. I like The Shape of Water just fine. Uh, I think, yeah, Pan's Labyrinth is still probably his best film. I, I think that's probably safe to say. Pan's, um, Pan, Pan's Labyrinth or The Devil's Backbone. Those are both really, really good movies. I revisited and they them both have, recently. I think Devil's Backbone. No, I think uh, Pan's Labyrinth is the winner. Is there. the better one. Yeah, because yeah. they they actually have like something political to say. There's actually yeah. something going on beyond just sort of fantasy fun. I think there's two. I think here's the, with Guillermo del Toro is that there's two Guillermo del Toros. Mm. There's serious fairy tale filmmaker Guillermo del Toro, and he's mm. the one who makes Pan's Labyrinth: The Shape of Water. Mm. And then there's dorky Guillermo del Toro, mm. and that's the that's the filmmaker who makes the broad stuff. That's the filmmaker mm. who makes Mimic. Yeah. That's the filmmaker who makes the Hellboy movies. Yeah, sorry, that's the filmmaker who makes Crimson Peak. Crimson mm. Peak is funny. Crimson Peak is it's Crimson Peak. He's going for camp in some of Crimson he, Peak. He, he needed to get in and out of that thing in ninety minutes. It's I agree, over two hours. I agree that movie is bloated. There's a lot I really love about Crimson Peak. I agree with you. He's spotty, but unlike you, I, there's never really been a Guillermo del Toro movie I didn't at least like. All right. So I don't agree with you on him being that inconsistent, mm. but I see your point, and okay. I think that one's obviously it's, a, it's all yeah. a matter of taste. Uh, and there are some filmmakers that I, I hated and always expected to just sort of hate all of their output, and then they make a movie that really got me. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of Michael Bay. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't like his films when I should have been liking his movies. Like, I didn't I didn't <laughs> like The Rock when it came out. I was yeah. 17 when that movie came out. It's like, oh, I, I should be all about something like The Rock. It's like, this is dull claptrap. I'm not going to watch any, any of these stupid action movies. I didn't see, like, the Bad Boys movies or the first Transformers, but I've seen most of the others, and they're just not fun to watch. And then he made Six Underground, this thing that just went straight to Netflix, and it's just as cynical and bloated as his other movies, but somehow it kind of worked for me that time. <laughs> like, something about that setup and those characters, like, it just sort of finally fell into place. Again, not a great action classic or nothing, but I ended up enjoying that movie. Well, that's why you always have to keep an open mind. Like, here's, yeah. another, here's another filmmaker whose work I actively detested mm. uh, was Sean Anders. Sean Anders. Sean Anders uh, mm-hmm. makes comedies. Uh, he made Sex Drive, which I actually didn't see. Right. He made That's My Boy, which is just oh, terrible. Mm. Uh, Horrible Bosses 2. Which also terrible. Chris yeah. Pine's really funny in that movie, but the rest of that movie is just mm. awful. He made both the Daddy's Home movies, which I can think are Oof. both contemptible films. Uh-huh. And then, two years ago, he did a movie called Instant Family... <laughs> Which is wonderful. <laughs> it's a legitimately wonderful movie. In which, uh, I think it's Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byrne. Yeah, it was Mark yeah. Wahlberg and Rose yeah. Byrne. They, uh, they're married and they decide they want to have kids, but they decide they want to adopt kids because there are so many kids out there who need adoption. They would be responsible to do so. And they only want to adopt one, but the kid that they like really form a connection with has siblings and they can't break them up. So they have to adopt several kills. So, so all of a sudden, their learning curve just spiked dramatically. 
Mm-hmm. And now they're, but it's all about navigating the adoption system in a way that's a little bit more informed than you're used to in this kind of movie. The actual struggle of forming emotional attachments to people who are already largely formed. I mean, uh, Isabella Merced is in that movie and she's already like a sophomore, junior in high school in that film. She's almost out the door. Mm-hmm. How do you form a close connection? How do you make, how do you become family with someone who's that? You know, yeah. already rebellious teenager. Like, mm. it's an emotionally honest, funny, sweet movie from <laughs> this guy who almost makes, exclusively like these, these makes shit. Comedies. I hate. Yeah. <laughs> I hate most of his movies. Mm. But as a fan, is great. What are, what are the odds? It's great. I love that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, David Ayer is another one that comes to mind. He started out with these really horrible crime movies like uh, Hard Times and mm. Street Kings. And, and like, it did Training Day, which I liked and you didn't. But, I, yeah, yeah, I don't like Training Day. Yeah. But but then he made uh, End of Watch. And End of Watch is like legit great drama. A great. Just really well filmed and has great acting. And, yeah. Uh, he did Fury, uh, Michael, which is Michael, awesome. Michael Pena yeah. and um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal. They were really, really good in that movie. Yeah, they're wonderful in that movie. Yeah. That's like some of their best work. Yeah, and then he followed that with Fury. It's like, oh, this is, you know, how to do a war film as well. And then he did The Suicide Squad. I, th- I think and... technically he followed it with Sabotage, which I would argue is oh. better than he got. I think it's better than he gets credit <laughs> no, for. Because, oh, because Morel right. Enos is... is Eating the scenery in that movie. Mariel Enos is the only reason to see Sabotage. She's so funny. Schwarzenegger is not. No, (laughs) he's actually the worst part of the movie. It's actually, it's her movie, and I think it's it's Olivia Williams who plays like the cop in that one. I who played the cop. Yeah, both the the women in that movie are the best parts in that movie. Mariel Enos is All the male characters are nothing. Like legit awesome action star in that movie. Oh my god, there's this this cool action scene in Sabotage with Mariel Enos, who, if you've ever like seen her in person, she's really short. She's just Mm. like five nothing. There's a whole action sequence where it's a car chase with her in the trunk of a car, and it's a high-speed car chase. She's out in front, and it's her with a sniper rifle shooting behind her Mm. in the middle of a car chase while she's just packed into a trunk. Mm. It's a fucking boss! I'm going to look up some other Muriel Enos movies, because she's so good. She's really good. I mean, she tends to be, like, good in movies Mm. that I appreciate her, like she was in World War Z. Oh yeah, she was Brad Pitt's wife, and oh, she got almost I, nothing to I, do. I looked her up. I just learned she's married to Alan Ruck. Yeah, who from uh, First Bueller's Day Off and, yeah. and Star Trek Generations. And yeah, funny actor. Uh, let's see. She was that. She the best thing that I knew her from yeah, was she started in that AMC play. series, The Killing, which okay. was great for one season and then bad for all the others. But it wasn't her mm. fault. Um, I'm a big fan. I think really is Mar- awesome. Marisa Tomei film Dark was the night. Uh, oh, she was in Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. She played the dead mom. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She played his mom. She oh. played his mom. Forgot about that. Yeah. It's kind of a thankless she's, role. She's great. I really she's like great. her. She's great. She deserves better. But, um, yeah. So, yeah. Listen. Mm-hmm. Directors, we want to put all our faith in a director. Mm-hmm. We do. Because if they're good to us and they make a couple of good movies, we get excited to see anything that they do. Mm-hmm. But every single time, it's flipping a coin, man. Because even when you look at someone like Rob Zombie, who clearly is an auteur. Uh-huh. Auteur is not a qualitative statement. Auteur, I think, is a matter of when you see their movie, can you tell they made it? Mm. That's basically it. Rob Zombie has a lot of factors that affect his movies that are outside of his control. Yeah. Three from Hell did not have a budget. Three from Hell had to be dramatically rewritten because Sid Haig, all of a sudden, just before the production began, one of the stars of the movie that he had written the movie around was dying. Mm. That sucks. Like, it doesn't make the movie better, but it's there's all these things that can get in the way of yeah. people telling, making the movie they want to make, telling the story they want to tell the way they want to tell it. And even then, there's no guarantee 
it'll be good. What, what was the hooligan movie he wanted to make and you just couldn't get funding for? Hooligan movie. Uh, that That's what he, he... He wanted to make a hockey movie. Uh, yeah. yeah. There was it like was... this really ultra-violent hockey team that he hmm. just thought was an interesting story and he wanted to build... That, that, that's what he was trying to get funding for yeah. and... Uh, and Kind of as a joke, he's like he's on the phone with the investor saying, "And here, here, it's like this hooligan movie, and it's about these hockey hooligans, and they're just they're they're going to beat mm. each other up, and they're really violent. I think this is a really interesting, dramatic story." And like he put the phone down and like didn't hang up. He just sort of like put it away from his mouth, turned to a friend in the room, and said, "Watch, I'm going to think of something off the top of my head. And I'm going to get funding for that." I've been yeah. working on this thing for years, and I'm getting nothing. And he gets back on the phone. How about a film about a bunch of clowns who stalk people in, on Halloween? They said, okay, good. That's, and he made 31. That's actually pretty much the story, yeah. yeah. I actually don't hate 31. It's gross and stupid <laughs> it's, and it's, overblown. But it's gross and stupid. I think he I think, I think he knows really, what movie he's making. I also think uh, Rob Zombie has a lot of uh, strength when it comes to character and that like older characters who just sort of converse and hang out. And yeah. I think that stuff is... Anyway, we've been too, talking too much about it. We, yeah, we, we should but, move um, on, but yeah. Uh, let's go to another letter. Please. Uh, here's a letter from... Just it's signed off with the letter E. Ooh. Hello, Mister E. Ooh. Or Mister E. Or Mrs. E. Or Mizzy. Or Mizzy. Uh, or just E. Hello, E. Yeah. Uh, mix E. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. I've been taking some time to catch up on a lot of best of lists, and I recently enjoy your lists in particular. I went out of the way uh, to see Little Women and Port of a Lady on Fire. Oh, thank goodness. Yay! Uh, both great films. They're both excellent, so thanks for that. I'm also really excited that a Swedish film got on the top ten of the decade list, even though I haven't seen that film in particular. Swedish films in Sweden are like American indie films in America. Lower budget, smaller release, and there's a bigger chance the average person in the street has has only seen the latest Star Wars film. <laughs> I've actually always been curious about that, yeah. how how native cinema is greeted in their native country. Because I know yeah. American cinema is like such a global powerhouse mm-hmm. that a lot of these gigantic blockbusters open in every country. Yeah, they just fill theaters. Yeah, so In fact, some countries actually have rules about how many American movies are allowed mm. to be in their theaters because otherwise it just dominates the marketplace mm. and their own filmmakers can't get their stuff seen. I, I know in the province of Quebec, I don't know this, if this is a law, but... Uh, there's actually a lot. There's a lot of laws on the books on how much public, like signage and discourse, has to be in French in yeah. Quebec, and I think that might be true of the cinema as well. There have to be has to be like a certain amount of French cinema. Yeah. Um, uh, in fact, American films and television in general take up most of the space in Swedish media and has a huge influence here. Anytime you go to a movie, there are about 80 percent of the films playing there are American, and the same goes for the television. It's got positive sides. In general, Hollywood movies are pretty good, and they do have bigger budgets and talents behind them. And because we don't dub films, people tend to get very good at English through exposure. Hmm. However, it also gives a very one-sided view on the world. The American view. Yeah, I'd imagine it would. One of the things I really love about cinema, TV, and books is that it allows us to get a window into lives completely different from our own and to see parts of the world we never get to experience in real life, even though we live in a modern age with the internet that gives us access to so much and the ability to travel and communicate with people from all over, it's impossible to experience everything, and I'm constantly faced with just how little I know about the world. It's the big irony about the internet, isn't it? Yeah. It allows us to tribalize, not grow. Yeah. Um, Which is why I, I seek out films that can show me more. In addition to watching the latest Avengers film, because I I'm only human. Uh, while I, I might never get to travel through space and made aliens, aliens I do uh, I do get to see superheroes do it. 
It's cool. One example of a film I saw recently that expanded my worldview is the Swedish film Sami Blood, or or Sami Blood in Swedish, about a young Sami girl in the 1930s who, after experiencing horrible discrimination, decides to try and assimilate into Swedish culture instead of continuing to feel alienated and isolated. Despite it being set in my own country, the film explores parts of our history that we were barely taught about in school and that I know very little about, so it gave me a whole new point of view. I also really saw uh, saw a really great black and white film from Egypt. Unfortunately, I don't know the name. Google has uh, helped me to uh, fail to help me find it, but I found it quite reminiscent of American films of the same era, with a fun rom com plot, beautiful shots, pretty outfits, and a feisty, intelligent female lead who held her own. The media I've been exposed to in the past. Uh, Usually only explores either ancient Egypt or the time around the 2011 revolution, sure. leaving a huge gap in history in the middle. Kind of. While, while I've always known that Egypt has a prolific film industry, I've never seen or heard anything from the golden age of cinema in the 50s or 60s. This film gave me a window into a whole new part of Egypt. So my questions for you are, hmm. uh, do you have a film that you've watched recently that opened your eyes and gave you new insight either to another culture or part of history that you knew very little about? This can be American or a non-American film. Right. And secondly, do you have any favorite Swedish and or Egyptian movies you'd like to recommend? <laughs> <laughs> wow, we're, we're staying oh, in sweet. Sweden this. You're in week, charge yeah. of recommending the Swedish movies this time. <laughs> okay, and yeah. uh, we've actually already recently discussed that yeah, we uh, we're not experts in the Egyptian cinema. So yeah, sad um, that we don't. Uh, sincerely, e. Well, we did uh, watch an Egyptian film called The Night of Counting the Hours yep. or The Night of Counting the Days. Excuse me, uh, which was. Uh, is often considered one of the best of all Egyptian films. We uh, did this as part of the two-shot. We watched the film Gods of Egypt, and we realized that our exposure to Egyptian culture was always Americanized. It was always through, like, yeah. mummy films and we, stuff. So, I'd, seen, I, like, I'd seen a few documentaries, but that was it. Like, yeah, I had yeah. exposed to Egyptian mm-hmm. cinema. So we actually went out of our way to expose ourselves to classic Egyptian cinema. It was the, the Night of Counting the Years. Night of Counting the Years. Uh, and yeah. the Night of Counting the Years was about a small... Uh, financially destitute uh, kind of tribal people living yeah. way out in, in isolation yeah. in Egypt who had access to this rich repository of ancient artifacts. Yeah, a tomb, that they, A tomb that they were plundering and selling in the cities just so they could make ends meet. And it was and about the, sort of... A young man who learns about the secret of that this is how our, our, our village has mm. been sustaining itself and he can't handle the guilt of that and he actually because goes on a mission like, to try to stop that. And, and it is about sort of trying to preserve the Egyptian national character which is often being plundered. Yeah, uh, and, and I think it was, by colonialists. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was, yeah, the kind of riff on colonialism. It's very slow moving but mm. I think it's a very important movie. No, that's an interesting uh, one. That's it's definitely one as well mm. that I was completely, I had no in Yeah, the, 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 culture, the Night of, so the night of Counting the Years was like kind, kind of like a good eye-opener into Egyptian culture because that was one that doesn't get discussed in America a lot. No, if at all. Uh, any film that opened opened my eyes to, like, an, an other there's culture. A, there's a great movie. I want to make sure I get it right. Hold on. Uh, it came out, I think, two years ago. And I loved it, and I think you saw it, too. It's called I Am Not a Witch. Oh, yeah, that's a really good movie. I Am Not a Witch is fantastic. Yeah. I'm mad that this movie got overlooked so bad. Mm. It's from a... I think she was a first-time filmmaker. Her name was Rangano Nayoni. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is about a young girl, um, in Africa who mm. is scapegoated by her town. Everyone's just, she's like an orphan who just wander around doing her stuff. Everyone's just like, yeah, she's terrible. She brings bad luck. So they accuse her of being a witch and she's sent to a village of witches where women who are considered a problem are just mm. sent and told to stay. And it's. 
weird and sad and tragic and farcical mm. as well, because Morgana Leone obviously has no respect for this institution. And yeah, it's brilliant and it's really fascinating and it really it's it's there's it's 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 a it's based enough on reality that you're gonna pick up on a lot of the really horrible elements of our sexist world in which we live mm. in cultures beyond whichever one we know unless you grew up in that culture, I guess. Um but yeah, it's also just fiercely satirical and yeah. it's such a good movie. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. Yeah. Um Oh, uh, um, what's the, you got it. The, there's a wonderful Senegalese movie uh, oh. that came out last year called Atlantic oh, yeah, by, yeah, by yeah. Monty Diop. And that, uh, that kind of uh, was a good exposure to sort of the, the modern Senegalese plight and sort of the, the divide between classes and how it, it staged the entire thing as a ghost story, essentially how the, the ghosts of the dead working classes were possessing the women to take revenge on the upper classes, right. more or less. Uh, there's more to it than that, but uh, that's a really terrific movie. So I, I recommend you see Atlantics. I think that was nearly on my top ten list. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, to, so yeah, this to, is to the power. You're right. This is the power of cinema. This mm. is we we wherever we are, we tend to be limited to what's available, which is why I mean this is something that even like people are like oh streaming has so much. We're so limited to what they offer. They don't literally have everything, and even if they do have a lot, they're not necessarily curated and presented to us. And it's always just whatever is popular and a hit right now. Whatever marketing yeah, company is spending the money to put it on a homepage, and, and unfortunately, uh, those movies are temporary on the streaming services. They could be great this week and bad next week. You know, yeah. it's difficult to to keep an eye on what's going on. Yeah. So movies represent this really wonderful, very powerful, very visceral. A way to immerse us mm. in another culture um, in a way that, you know, other art forms do, but I would argue that in some cases, mm. movies do even better. Well, you, you saw Cemetery of Splendor, right? I did. You did. And and didn't you, wasn't your complaints that it was too Thai? Like, I, not it, that it was, I mean, I wouldn't say it was too Thai because it can be whatever it wants to well, be, just but like, I found it a little impenetrable yeah, because like, I don't understand a lot of the frames of reference. Yeah, let's just say the iconography yeah. of, of just Thai culture right. in general. So yeah. It was fascinating, but I felt like I wasn't getting as much out of it mm. as I would have if I was part of the original culture. Mm. Um, I could go digging further. I could see more films in that culture. I would like to. Mm. Uh, time is a factor, of course. But yeah, I, I was a bit at a loss. But that was kind of interesting, too, to just be dropped into something mm. right in the middle and just sort of feel your way around and... Try to pick up what you can. That is itself kind of fascinating, but I'm probably not reading the film the way it was intended to be read. Uh, here's a letter from Linda. Okay. Hi, Linda. Uh, in we, We're still getting responses to like our best of the decade list, <laughs> so uh, people aren't giving their lists, uh, but they're responding. Uh, in the best films of the decade episode, Boyhood came up a couple of times, which Bibbs said that he didn't feel the film really had enough perspective, and that's why it wasn't on his list. Well, I don't know about the that aspect, but I can tell you what perspective is possibly the best one to watch the film with, and that's as a parent of adult children. Mm. Accompanying my adult children on their journey from babyhood to adulthood was one of the central themes of my life. It's hugely meaningful, only matched by my marriage. I suspect this is true for many parents, and Boyhood reflected that experience so deeply for a parent who has gone through the entire cycle of childhood, watching a child grow... It's not something we do as a spectator. It's far more emotionally meaningful than that. And the movie left me sobbing. So this might be one of those films that takes on a different meaning depending on what stage of life 
on, you, of your own you are in. Signed, Linda. Uh, that's a great perspective. Yeah. And that's something that I discover more and more every year I grew up. I remember mm-hmm. when I was young and I loved romance movies, loved romantic mm-hmm. comedies, and but I'd never dated. Okay. And then I finally was in a relationship mm-hmm. and I experienced, you know, the the joys. Hey, uh, cats, cats, come cats. on. Trying to be sen- trying to be sentimental here. Wrestling again. And I, I learned the joys of, you know, first love and your mm. first kiss and heartache and jealousy and all these things that have been totally academic to me before. Mm. And then when I watched those romance movies again, they had a totally different meaning because I understood where they came from. Mm. Not just people weren't just screwing around being like, ha, ah, it's fun to be in love. It's like, actually, no, this is all very sad. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry about that. I, mm. I understand now. Um, when it comes to boyhood... Uh, one thing I think is really interesting about Boyhood is Boyhood is a great example of how a title mm-hmm. can completely change a film. <laughs> I know some people like say, like, oh, it's a title, it's not a big deal. But mm-hmm. the original title of Boyhood was not Boyhood, it was 12 Years. Mm-hmm. 12 Years is a neutral title. 12 Years doesn't tell you who the protagonist is. Mm-hmm. 12 Years tells you this Ta- is the story is of the time. Factor, yeah. Changed, Boyhood tells you the story. This is the story of the boy. They changed it because it came out the same year as Twelve Years a Slave, and they didn't want to get the two mixed up. Right. Which mm. obviously they're very different films, but you know, on one ticket to the Twelve movie or whatever mm. like yeah. that, you're going to mess it up. At least that was their concern. Uh, yeah, that's a very different thing. Calling it Boyhood frames the entire conversation mm. around Eller Coltrane's character. But you saw the movie. You know, it's more than just about his character. I understand it's more than about his character, but it does help. It, it's. It you're, tells you're, you it's a, it's looking a, it's too a tour guide. At him. It's a tour guide. Okay. It tells you like the important thing is the boy, mm. and so you're you're focusing a bit more on the boy and the other and it characters. And ends with him. The so, other yeah. characters feel more like supporting characters rather than what it really should have been, which is an ensemble. Mm. So it's a matter of perspective, and I think the pers- the title skews the perspective a little bit. Mm. Does that mean that it's not my fault? And you know, all that? no, of course not. But I think it talks about it says a lot about the power of a title okay. to con, to frame the way that we look at a movie because for, until we see it, that's what we know. Yeah, the title. Mm. You know, like if you had called, uh, uh, you know, Citizen Kane, the story of the sled. <laughs> really changes yeah. the way you're going to watch that movie. Well, the original title of Citizen Kane was simply American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which also frames it a little bit differently. differently, Citizen Kane makes it sound like one guy. Mm. American makes it, it tells you this is an allegory. Mm. That's a different, people would probably respond to it slightly differently, wouldn't they? I suppose so. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for that letter. That's a really useful perspective. And I'm sure it's going to be a movie I revisit somewhere down the road and it's going to hit me in a different way. Yeah. The the film that always, there are two films that that I always go to when it comes to changing perspective. One is The Exorcist. Mm, Same. Uh, Because, yeah, when when you're a kid, you're watching The Exorcist, it might be kind of slow moving. You're waiting for a lot more mayhem. Mm. When you get older, you realize that a lot of the horror comes from uh, the Ellen Burstyn's perspective, Ellen Burstyn character perspective because she's freaking out about the health of her daughter yeah and that's actually way more terrifying for her than all of the sort of demon mayhem that comes later hey no demons now the demon mayhem is great and rest in peace max von Sydow. yes but uh that's that's not sort of the focus of the film it's just the climax of the movie and yeah. when you're a young person and you're being weaned on slasher movies where there's mayhem every five minutes mm-hmm. It's going to seem like a little bit more boring once you're when you're young. Uh, when you're you older, pro- you're going to dig on something. When you're like that. young, you haven't had the same. Co- I mean, you, I'm not saying you haven't experienced mm. these emotions, but you haven't lived with anxiety and dread. 
or, no, or, or, same way. or existential yeah. like religious crisis no. the way that adults tend to have a bit more experience with right so when you're young you think of a horror movie as physical violence because you can wrap your head around that yeah oh if someone cut off my arm that would suck it would hurt a lot that yeah, would like, yeah, I, yeah that would be scary but when you're an adult all of a sudden mm. something like oh no someone in my family is dying mm. and i'm helpless even though they're my responsibility that's not a thing a 10 year old gets well, or at least they're not supposed to. I was about to say, and a ten-year-old shouldn't be watching The Exorcist anyway. Well, true, but like when you're young and you're seeing these movies, you're probably not having the the experiential cachet yeah. that the filmmakers expected you to. Mm. The Exorcist is an R-rated movie, not just because it's violent and there's mm. horrible things that are said, but because I don't think kids are going to get anything out of it. I just don't. Yeah. Uh, the other film I go to when it comes to changing perspectives and uh, is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, another one from the 70s. Mm. Uh, when you're young, when you're a teenager, you're probably watching it for the first time. Murphy is this is the sympathetic character. He's yeah. this kind of rebel. He's like goes into this repressive system and he just wants to break out and he wants everybody to act normal and sort of uh, conform to his idea and be free. And Nurse, Nurse Ratchet is the villain of the piece. She is the cop. She's the one who's laying down the law. She's the teacher. She's the parent. She's the one you want to rebel against. Yeah. You watch that and as an adult, Murphy is the villain of the piece. He's the dick who is messing up something that is very carefully constructed and doesn't understand anything about the world. Mm-hmm. And Nurse Ratchet is the hero who's keeping order. I don't know about hero. <laughs> I think that might be a slight exaggeration. I think Nurse Ratchet makes you, some decisions at the end that are not heroic. She's at least the more sympathetic character to an adult. I, I would argue that... And you what, can understand her decisions a lot better. For, yeah, I agree with that. Mm. For me, One for the Cuckoo's Nest doesn't so much flip mm. so much as it becomes more even-handed. Perhaps and so. like Murphy's, that, Murphy's idea of rebellion and individuality and exactly. treating inmates more as individual human beings rather than just patients, there's a place for that, and mm-hmm. he does it badly. Nurse Ratchet's desire for order is reasonable, but it's also not necessarily getting anyone mm-hmm. anywhere, and her over-reliance you, you, yeah. on lobotomy by the well, end is really not great. So there's give and take in the, that one. I think, I, it's more, I, I think it just equalizes over that, time. That's fair. My point is you don't like Murphy anymore after a while. Way, no. you, don't, you, don't think of, you don't see him as the sort of heroic figure. You see yeah. him as a troublemaker, more or less. Yeah, um, I agree. He's, he's definitely yeah. a very... He's not a good person. No, no, he's he's not the worst human being I've ever seen. But he's not a good person. Yeah, he's not a good guy. Uh, Here's a letter. Do we have time for a few more? We got a couple more. Here's a letter from Canadian Keith. Hello, Canadian Keith. Hello. Uh, to the artists Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, we're artists. In a recent letter, you briefly discussed whether or not criticism is art, comparing what you do is artistically inferior to the physical art that William's wife makes. <laughs> well, if art boiled down to something intended to be appreciated for its beauty or emotional power, then in my opinion, criticism absolutely is art. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you discussed my top 10 list films of the decade, uh, over the span of just a few minutes, you effortlessly pointed out meanings and themes in them that I hadn't even considered. You explained to me in deeper ways just why I love those movies and the experience was undeniably emotional. I think being able to do something like that counts as art in and of itself, comparable to the skills of a comedian, a musician, or a poet. Uh, so thank you for all the art you produce on a nearly daily basis, Keith. That uh, really means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I want to uh, clarify... Uh, something which is if I said that criticism was not like real art mm. uh, and that the art that my wife Michelle makes is is real art, mm. that's not quite what I meant. Um, I might have been having like a bad day oh, if that oh, came across, but like I think what I meant just is saying it in flip ways, but I'm I, sure I'm sure yeah, your meaning was taken. I, I feel like 
Film criticism is in many respects sort of confined to certain mm. formal structures. All art is a reaction to something. It's a reaction to the world, mm. it's a reaction to uh, politics, life, family, love, something. Mm. And you experience something and you want to respond to it, you want to reinterpret it, you want to share it with other people, you create art. Um, when it comes to something like film criticism, we're kind of always responding to the same thing. We're just responding to movies. Mm. They're different movies, and there's all sorts of different movies made by all different kinds of people, and it's always very exciting. But there's a certain limited structure to it. Yeah. Where we're always talking about someone else's text. Whereas someone who is creating a narrative by themselves, yes, they're responding to other things and they're talking about other things, but there's a little bit more creative freedom in how they do it. A, and that, a, was, a little bit more. That's all it is. It's creative. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like I just feel like that's kind of what I was talking about. Hmm. But that's just me wanting to be clear for the sake of posterity. Right. I wasn't trying to put myself too far down. It means a lot to me that there are people out there who actually appreciate art criticism mm. as, 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 as an, as an art, art form unto itself. Yeah, that's yeah. really nice to hear. Not well, just because I'm, I'm doing it, because I think there's real value yeah. to the job. There, there's absolutely value to it, and there's definitely an art to it, and. Uh, criticism, I think, is sort of like it's art, but with an asterisk, because it, it is sort of in this weird sort of realm all by itself. There yeah. aren't other art forms that are like criticism. Uh, criticism is pretty unique in that it is, you know, commenting on art, but on the way to like an essay or an analysis. Yeah. And I think there's there's definitely value in that. And there's definitely art to that, especially if you're writing, you know, you're writing as part of that art form. But it's not creating a new piece of art as a counterpoint. It's simply discussing the points. And I feel like uh, maybe not simply, but it, you can't you can't not discuss the points. Exactly. You remove that, and it's no longer art criticism. Mm. So you, you, there's a certain. Form so of I, I feel like there, there's a lot of overlap between yeah. the art of criticism and sort of the intellectual dimension, which you know some yeah. arts are purely emotional or the, they. They get to you on sort of like a, a this really ineffable like they're reaching in and they're kind of enriching your soul in some sort of way that you can't yeah. put your finger on. Uh, criticism is uh, very directly and very deliberately intellectual. It's going toward the a little bit more of the logical receptors of the brain, mm. which I think puts it on a le- like engages both halves of your brain, your left brain and your right brain simultaneously. I don't think it's necessarily true because a lot of what criticism is, we, we mm. intellectualize films a lot and we talk mm. about technical craft and themes and context. And mm. these are typically intellectual ideas. But I actually think a lot of criticism mm. should be uh, based on emotion because movies are, and, and all art really, but mm. we're talking about movies. Movies are an emotional art form. Movies are intended to evoke emotions. Mm. And if we respond to movies and like this, some people have this fantasy in their head of like pure objectivity, Mm. we're not going to respond emotionally. Mm. We're not going to give ourselves unto the movie and allow the movie an opportunity to not just intrigue us, but to like fuel us and nourish us and give us something to feel. Mm. And I think one of the ironies of film criticism is that we are responsible for being that emotionally open. Mm. But then we have to intellectualize our own emotions enough to describe them to others. Mm. So we have to do both. Which yeah. is why, you know, sometimes people will watch a movie and just they would just say, I liked it, it made me feel so good. That's wonderful. That's not criticism. Criticism requires you to explain how it did that. Mm. 
that sometimes isn't fun. <laughs> sometimes it would be <laughs> nice to just say, I liked it, and move on with your day. <laughs> but that's not what criticism is. We actually have to intellectualize it enough to at least discuss the stuff that normally isn't part of the intellectual process. Mm. And that's a weird thing to do. <laughs> it's a weird mindset to be in. And it requires you to kind of overanalyze all sorts of things in your whole life. It kind of changes mm. your overall perspective, I think, if you yeah, take but, it seriously. I've heard it put this way. Um, if you write essays, you're a Scrabble champion. You know a lot of words. Okay. If you're a critic, you're a crossword champion. You have to know a lot of shit about a lot of shit. <laughs> you just have to have this basic general working knowledge of everything, and you make these kinds of weird connections that only lay across each other kind of technically. You just described two of my very favorite things. Scrabble and crossword puzzles? Yeah, I do both. <laughs> I, I, I'm a, I'm a rock-solid scrabbler, and mm-hmm. like I do crossword puzzles literally every day. Uh, there was a time when I thought I was good enough to enter like a Scrabble tournament. No. Then I saw a documentary film called Word Wars. Oh, yeah. Which is about a Scrabble tournament. I'm like, no. A friend of I'm mine nowhere was, near these people. The guy I went to college with was an assistant editor on that. So oh, no I kidding. That, okay. like, really, really early. That's a good documentary. It's a good documentary. Um... Yeah, like, oh, like and I, there was, oh, and you know what? Around the same time, there was also the Will Shorts documentary, yeah. the guy who writes crossword puzzles. Yeah, so you get both perspectives from those two documentaries. And films. there was also a Spelling Bee one. It was around there at the same time. Yeah, like, there was I mean, a lot of word centric competition mm. documentaries. Well, what's the name of the Will Shorts documentary? I don't remember. I totally oh. forgot. No, no, no. Crossworded or some something yeah. along those lines. Feeling cross. <laughs> Well, Don't cross me. I'm going to look it up because this is going to drive me crazy. Words, yeah. words, crosswords. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, but listen, again, that you appreciated and that you were able to articulate why uh-huh. makes you a critic too. Oh. the person who wrote it. I just want to say thank you for that. Of course I couldn't remember. It was called wordplay. Well, yeah, that was the title of the film. Oh, that would no wonder. So watch word wars and wordplay, but and watch them back to back if you can. Good stuff. Uh, but no, it means a lot to me that what we do means a lot to people. Mm. And I don't know if I could, I've had just crappy day jobs. <laughs> Haven't we all? Yeah. Office stuff, retail, we've all done it. And there's something kind of draining about that, not just physically, but just in my head. Like, Mm. I can't do it. Like, I need to feel like, whether or not I did criticism, I need to do something that, like, I feel makes the world a more, at least a more interesting place, better, hopefully. Mm. But, like, I want to feel like it mattered that I did what I did. Yeah. That's all I need. Hmm. Um, I don't want to feel like if I didn't go to work today, literally nothing will be different. So that I get to help people find yeah. movies, talk about movies, enrich you know their artistic experience. That's what I love doing. That's what I want yeah. to do. And that that's why we like these letters episodes, because we can hear that people are actually listening to us. God, they're so nice. <laughs> you just guys sort of yelling best. into a canyon. So, th- yeah, thank you so much for for coming back at us and yeah. let us know that you're just even listening. Even if you hate what we say. Yeah, that's yeah, fine. That's a genuine uh, that's reaction, fair. and that's yeah. totally fine. And we yeah, got a lot of people who say, I don't agree with hardly anything you mm. say, but I think it's interesting to hear you talk. Yeah, yeah. And that's great. I'm happy <laughs> with that. I can I, live with I that. Would, I would rather somebody sort of hear my perspective and disagree with everything mm-hmm. uh, than just sort of dismiss me all right. Yeah. Because at least you're worth listening to. So, um, well, presumably. <laughs> well, I mean, otherwise they'd stop. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, so listen, thank you everybody for joining us. That's a great, I think, place to end it right there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, thank you everybody for being part of this journey. Thank you everybody for writing in. If you want to write in, by all means, please do. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We do an episode of We've Got Mail every single week. We never quite catch up. 
But that's good because it means we've always have more letters to read. So uh, we try to read as many as we can. Send them on in. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to contribute to the show and you have the means, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. You will get uh, for $1 and up, you get to vote for future episodes and you're going to get the Firefly podcast, which is starting up real, real soon. Um, other installments, other tiers, you get the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie where this whole year we're doing Not on Disney Plus which is full of TV movies that, for whatever reason, Disney isn't putting on their only Disney streaming service. So we're mm. sort of highlighting the history they don't want you to know. Uh, we're doing uh, our Star Trek podcast, All Our Yesterdays, where we review every single episode of Star Trek in production order. And we're just about to wrap up the first season. Mm. Uh, very excited. Uh, we do Only the Best, where we review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture in chronological order. Uh, we do Hangouts, commentary tracks. We need to schedule a Hangout after you get back from your vacation. Yeah, I'm, I'm le leaving town for a couple days. Yeah, which is why there isn't a new critically acclaimed this week. Just scheduling mm. didn't quite work out, but we wanted to put some stuff in the tank. Um, and uh, yeah, we got new stuff coming all the time. We have new episodes of Cancel Too Soon on the way. Stick around because the great video Drew from the Schmodown is going to be helping us talk about David Lynch's Mulholland Drive on the next Cancel Too Soon. I'm very yeah, excited to share that with you. Episode, really yeah. fun. Um, so all kinds of cool stuff is coming. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. Leave a review if you haven't already. Follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Sincerely yours, the people we are. We just said our names. It's weird to say them again. Bibs and Whitney. You can be formal.